All right, hi everybody. Um, welcome back. I hope you had a nice week off. I'm sure you were working, but maybe a nice week of uh, not having classes and letting it get a bit caught up. Uh, I know it was certainly helpful for me. Um, I didn't quite finish writing the exam or writing the practice exam, but I do still plan to have a practice exam to give out to you that we can go over in two weeks when we do a review of the course. Um, and, you know, I think it's good timing uh, now to be writing that because we're coming close to the end of uh, the new material that we're going to be covering. So for the balance of the course, we are going to talk about um, the intersection of Aboriginal law and administrative law today and on Friday. And then next week, I want to cover both the practice of uh, administrative law, some practical concerns, and give you a better sense as to procedure of judicial review and some of these things that um, you know, may become more practically useful as you go forward. I also want to talk a bit about the federal courts. I did have a plan to have uh, one lecture on the federal court, one lecture on admin law and practice, um, and a chapter of reading for both. But I was thinking about it today, and I'm going to take off the federal court readings and instead just have that be an explanation um, you know, from my perspective as to the important components of the federal court for your administrative law knowledge and practice, um, leaving a bit more time for admin law in practice. And also, I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all the Aboriginal and Management Law this week, so we'll carry over a bit. So I will cut down the readings for next week. Um, for today, of course, we are going to get into that chapter on the intersection of Aboriginal law and administrative law. But before we do that, I want to finish up our discussion of charter values and charter rights and charter intersection with administrative law, and specifically finish up with the concurring or dissenting opinions in the Trinity Western University case. Um, this is, again, not ideal that we had such a long break between talking about the majority reasons and the concurring reasons, but there you go. Um, I actually listened to the podcast myself on the way in today to remember what I'd said last time, and that's a horrifying experience to listeners. So <laughs> don't do it. Um, what was even worse was... Um, I taught a course over the summer, and I had taught the same course the previous summer and taught in it like through podcasts as my main delivery mechanism during, you know, peak COVID restrictions. And so to refresh myself, I listened to the previous year's podcast like every day on my way into school, but I listened to them like double time just to get through them. So it was just me just yelling at myself at, <laughs> you know, 300 words a minute in, uh, at 8 in the morning. All right, so let's get into these concurring reasons. So we have three sets of concurring reasons in Trinity Western University. And you'll remember that the majority reasons, uh, the majority of the court said, um, we're going to apply this Dore Loyola framework. We are going to um, consider whether the administrative tribunal has proportionately balanced charter values with the state objective at stake. 
We're going to be able to do this even in the complete absence of reasons. And they decided that while there was a, um, a charter interest at stake held by the membership of the Trinity Western University community who wished to um, study in an environment that was uh, that reflected the religious beliefs contained in the covenant. This was a relatively abstract harm that would have been done to say that you can't keep this covenant while having a law school that is accredited to allow its graduates to take the PLPC program. And if you measure that against the concrete harm of having um, less spaces that are available to you as an LGBTQ individual, at least without profound personal sacrifice, they determined that the idea that you would reflect that balance by not allowing Trinity Western University to um, have its graduates take the PLTC course was a proportion of balancing. And the concurring or dissenting reasons, uh, concurring in McLaughlin and Rowe and dissenting in Brown and Cote, all take issue with the idea that we are going to continue to base the framework around charter values as opposed to charter rights. And they offer slightly different critiques and slightly different ways forward. But it is important, of course, to be clear that we're saying that four out of the nine judges of the Supreme Court indicated a willingness to move away from the charter values framework. And you know, we've had even further turnover on the court since this case came out. And so the going forward um, likelihood that we're going to continue just to apply Dore charter values analysis is you know, very much called into question, especially because its main proponent, Justice Avella, is no longer on the court. So really important to grapple with these other views as to what the proper way forward could be. So I'll start with the um, reasons of Chief Justice McLaughlin. So she agreed generally with the disposition, the idea that the decision of the law society was defensible, was legal, and you know ought not to be overturned in this process. But she offered four comments that I think are very likely to um, to resonate going forward. A lot of the academic critique coming out of the Trinity Western case held up McLaughlin's reasons as um, perhaps the uh, best way to chart a path forward that's more sensible without jettisoning some of the benefits that come from this charter values framework. So she said, you know, first off, let's be 100% clear about what is protected under the charter. And it is rights, not values. She says, in essence, that the language of values may not be helpful. And let's put the focus squarely on what matters, which is rights. And relatedly, and second, she says that the scope of charter rights needs to have a consistent interpretation. Regardless of whether we are questioning legislation or we are questioning actions of the executive. So I'm going to put up my, my circles. We're going to come back to them in the administrative advertising law context. Uh, they're going to be 
helpful there, I hope, too. So she's saying, you know, if you're looking at an action of the legislature, uh, and we're going to clearly apply uh, the, the wealth of jurisprudence defining the scope of the charter rights and uh, recognizing what would be reasonable limits, we need to ensure that the same outcome happens when we're looking at an action of the executive. And of course, we, uh, we've talked about this, but it's, it's important to keep in mind that it's possible to accomplish the exact same thing through specific legislation, which is always subject to an ordinary charter challenge, as it is to accomplish it through general legislation then applied by the executive. So, you know, if you say that um, um, the, you know, you may not um, rent a house to somebody uh, if they, the absurd example, you know, if, if somebody practices this religion, they cannot be rented a house. Well, that's obviously unconstitutional, and if that wasn't specific legislation, that would have to be struck down. But if you were to say that, you know, at the discretion of the members of the residential tenancy branch, they may determine who may or may not have a house rented to them, and somebody were to say, well, I say that you shouldn't be able to rent to somebody of a particular religion, well, then you've accomplished the same thing through general, legisl general legislation combined with an exercise of discretion, and ought not you have, ought not you, um, shouldn't you have the same substantive result in that circumstance? So you can get there, you can get to the same result through general legislation applied by the executive as you can through specific legislation. And she says, in essence, we need to make sure that we have the same protection in both circumstances. A consistent interpretation of the scope of charter rights, regardless of whether you're talking about the legislature or the executive's decisions affecting someone. She then says, look, I, I squarely accept that the onus of showing that a limit on a charter protected interest is reasonable falls on the state actor. So we had mentioned previously that this question of who bears the burden of showing that a uh, limit is reasonable, effectively the section one burden within this charter values framework is unclear, and there's strong criticism coming from uh, Justices Brown and Cote on that point. The lack of clarity in the majority reasons on that point. And Chief Justice McLaughlin says, we, we put that squarely on the state to justify its actions, which are prima facie limiting a charter protected interest, a charter right. And then finally, she says, let's just forget about worrying about the language of reasonableness here. When we are concerned with whether the executive has um, improperly limited someone's charter rights in a way that can't be justified by the state, it doesn't really help to talk about deference and reasonableness because if the state has unjustifiably limited someone's charter rights, that cannot be a reasonable decision, she says. So there's just no, no benefit to keeping the language of reasonableness in this framework. So many people have commented that it does seem that these four 
ideas address the principal concerns that have been leveled against the charter values framework and if accepted would seem to provide fairly clear guidance going forward. So again, that is the four principles being, let's talk about our rights, not values. Let's have a consistent interpretation of those rights, regardless of whether we're talking about the legislature or the executive. Let's recognize that the state bears the onus of showing any limits on a charter protected right is justified. And let's just not even worry about the language of reasonableness. So if we do those four things, many of the problems with the Charter Values Framework seem to be somewhat resolved is what people have, have accepted, or what many of the academic commentary around this has suggested. Um, she applies this framework, and she says, look, there is a religious freedom issue at stake, and it is not of minor significance. If you remember, the majority somewhat downplayed the religious freedom uh, issue at stake. And she says, I, I do not accept that this is a relatively minor limitation on the religious freedom of the community members of Trinity Western University. And she says there is a tradition of allowing schools and schools allowing people to study with others who share their religious faith and practices. But she finds that in the context of the regulation of the legal profession, there's a heightened concern around equality and equality of access to the profession because people um, you know, from all different backgrounds need to be able to access the law in order to be able to represent people from all different backgrounds. We need lawyers who can um, understand the concerns of people from you know, every different facet of our society. And so in light of those, that strong need for uh, you know, robust equality protection in this context, she finds it was nevertheless reasonable to accept what she classifies as a significant limit on the religious freedom of the community members of Trinity Western University. So she says balance is appropriate, and the decision can stand. Any thoughts or comments on McLaughlin's approach? All right, so, so if you want to think, you know, majority, stay the course. McLaughlin, somewhat stay the course, but let's tweak it significantly, move it to rights, let's ensure that we don't uh, give those rights less protection because we're in the executive, uh, let's um, not worry about the language of reasonableness, and let's be clear on who bears the burden of justifying any limitation. Um, you then move to the Justice Roe reasons, and Justice Roe, I think in many ways, agrees with Justice, Chief Justice McLaughlin's uh, broad approach, but where he disagrees is in her application or in the majority's application as well of the law of religious freedom to the facts at issue. And specifically, Justice Roe 
determines that there, there really isn't even a religious freedom um, interest at stake amongst the Trinity Western University community members. He gets there by saying, what the charter protects is sincere beliefs that you must do something. The, the charter protects, in essence, the commandments of the religion. And he says there's no evidence that the members of Trinity Western University believe that they are religiously compelled to only study amongst people who share their faith. And he points to evidence from the, uh, the individual. If you remember, there was both the Trinity Western University and an individual um, who were the applicants in this judicial review process, the individual being somebody who would have liked to have studied at Trinity Western University's law school. And in the evidence, he says, well, it was, I strongly would prefer to study at this university with a, a covenant. But he didn't say that my religion compels me only to study there. And indeed, that individual now is a practicing lawyer and got a degree from, I think, Calgary, but studied here at UBC for a little while. So you know, it's, it's not that, so, so Justice Rowe is saying, your religion isn't compelling you to have to do this. And so it's not something that we have to find within the protection of Section 2A, which is a, a fairly limited view of the protection of freedom of religion, and um, I think would be a pretty remarkable uh, com uh, sort of diminishment of that right as to the robust protection that is traditionally received, but you know, nevertheless is an interesting approach to the freedom of religion. And because he finds the religious freedom is not even engaged, then he determines that you know we don't have a charter values issue or charter rights issue here to concern ourselves with at all. But when discussing that framework, he does agree strongly that what needs to be considered are rights, not values. And he says, let's, let's leave values only to the situations where the charter doesn't have direct application. And that was when we were talking about the evolution of the common law, right? We're talking about the common law of defamation having an impact on the charter, um, you know, on your ability to express yourself freely, but the charter does not apply to the common law. And so the idea of charter values is helpful there in order to um, develop the common law in a way that's consistent with those fundamental values enshrined in the charter. But he says we need to recognize that that sort of a situation where the charter doesn't apply is quite different from a situation where someone's direct charter rights are at stake. And when someone's charter rights are at stake because of an action to which the charter does apply, you know, the decision of the Law Society of British Columbia as authorized under statute is very much a decision to which the charter does apply, then we need to talk about rights, not values. So he says, don't forget about the idea of charter values, but only uh, have recourse to it when you're in a situation to which the charter doesn't apply directly. 
All right, so that's sort of the justice row approach. I'm kind of moving a bit quickly through them just because I don't want to um, get too far behind in our discussion of Aboriginal and uh, Aboriginal law and administrative law. But let's uh, talk finally about the um, approach of Justices Cote and Brown. And they have a very strong dissent, I think, that is a uh, you know, fairly formidable uh, position to sort of overcome. Um, and they start out with saying, well, let's, before we get into the whole charter issue, let's be very careful in assessing and interpreting the scope of the law society's statutory mandate. And in essence, they say, let's not forget that this is administrative law at its, at its core, what we're doing here. And in order to even concern ourselves with the impact between this decision and the charter, we need to understand the scope of the discretion, the scope of the power that's given to the law society in this circumstance to understand if it really even has the power to affect the, uh, the charter protected interests in the way that it purports to do. And they say, we do not agree that the law society mandate goes beyond assessing the competence of the um, legal training and the legal graduates from that legal training in relation to the law. They say it's not the law society's mandate in this context when exercising these powers to go beyond simply seeing if this school can create competent lawyers and to consider broader societal interests and questions of um, you know, who should be teaching and, and who should be graduating with an ability to take this professional legal training course. So they say, if you're only talking about competence, which is how they interpret the law society's mandate, then they say there's never been a question that the Trinity Western University program would have been academically rigorous, produced competent lawyers. And so therefore, you simply had no uh, statutory mandate to concern yourself with this um, covenant and the religious issues that it raises and the equality issues that it raises. So an important reminder that even when you have a potential charter issue, that doesn't mean that the court can overlook the more traditional administrative law questions and interpret the scope of the mandate. Yeah? When they say that the law site, um, it's not in a mandate to concern are they implying that therefore they went outside of their jurisdiction by considering it? Absolutely, exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's not like their enabling statute has to explicitly say you are not allowed to consider these things as long as it doesn't explicitly allow them to consider it, they cannot. Well, that's not, not quite that clear. This really comes all the way back to Ron Corelli and the idea that when you give somebody a statutory power or a discretion, 
you need to consider the purpose for which that power was granted and that discretion, even if it seems to be broad enough to confer, you know, so unlimited discretion or unlimited power, um, you know, it won't be interpreted as so broad, but rather will be constrained by the purpose for which it was granted. There's a great analogy in the reading for, that we read for today about sort of discretion being the hole in the donut, and the donut is the constraint of the, that the um, grant sort of places on the boundaries of that discretion. And so what they say is in this law society enabling statute, we, we accept that there's a broad mandate to regulate in the public interest, but the specific rule that concerns accreditation of, of law schools doesn't go so far as to ask you to consider things outside of the scope of just the competency of the lawyers that are coming out of this program. And that being the case, you know, the, your discretion, your power, is to ascertain whether these lawyers are sufficiently competent coming out of the program, but not to go beyond that question and to ask yourself about those sort of moral values that you're furthering by allowing this school to, yeah, to have a program. It's a really key question you asked, that's great. Um, so, they, so, so they would say, first off, we don't even need to get into the charter in this case because you just stepped outside your scope of your discretion, scope of your jurisdiction. But they say, let's talk a bit about the charter rights, charter values framework. And ultimately what they say is we need this to mirror the section one analysis. They say that we take you at your word when you say that that's what should happen. They say majority. You say in Trinity Western that this charter rights, charter value, or this charter, this charter values framework effectively mirrors the section one analysis. And you'll remember last class that we talked about how the fundamental questions are whether the state interest at issue um, is proportionally balanced with the charter rights and the question is whether they have um, you know, given as much protection as possible and we talked about how that effectively is the same functionally as looking for a pressing and substantial objective and seeing if that objective has been accomplished in a minimally impairing way. So the majority sort of identifies this uh, I, this similarity in approach between the Oaks analysis and these charter values framework. And the dissent said, or this uh, dissenting reasons of Cote and Brown says, look, we, we, uh, we agree with you that this analysis should mirror the Oaks framework for the charter values, charter rights, administrative law perspective. But we don't agree that you, in practice, have acted in a way that follows the Oaks framework. And we're specifically upset by the fact that we don't even now understand who bears the burden of justifying an infringement on a charter right within this framework. So the majority um, raises but doesn't answer the question about who bears the burden and gets you know, called out pretty forcefully on that point by Justices Cote and Brown. 
Um, and they ultimately say that, you know, in essence, we've tried to um, fit within this departure from a straight oaks analysis that had been the way these charter rights issues were considered. We've tried to grapple with this charter values framework and we find it just isn't helpful. And we would like you to just continue to follow st more strictly an Oaks analysis. Um, they have some more you know, strong commentary on the question of rights versus values and the idea that values are not what the charter protects. And I think that they land the point quite well when they talk about equality and the idea that the value of equality is such an amorphous term and it can mean so many different things to so many different people, which is why the charter right that is protected by Section 15, the equality provision, is the subject to so much litigation and so much jurisprudence, which has now allowed courts to have a clear understanding of what is protected by this charter right. And so they say, you know, you have all this law, you are just asking to reconsider it all in essence by saying we're talking about a value, not a right. We can't have a difference between the two. We need to just lose this language that undermines the certainty and predictability that we have accomplished through all that jurisprudence on the charter. Um, and so, you know, fundamentally they conclude by saying the LSBC, the Law Society of British Columbia, had a limited mandate. And that limited mandate was to determine the competency of graduates from this program and determine whether they ought to be able to take the bar exam. The Law Society, it says, was never asked to approve of or to weigh in upon the covenant. So if you allow these graduates to take this Law Society training program, you haven't approved of the covenant and you haven't undermined the, um, the rights of, of others who uh, may not be able to abide by the covenant without personal sacrifice. It's, it was, it's besides the point. It's besides the point of what was being asked of you. And then fundamentally they say, this approach where the law society is not being asked to a judge on sort of the morality of schools or the, um, the you know, degree to which those schools promote what they refer to as a vague notion of equality, they say that will further equality because it will further a diversity of opportunity if different people get to choose to study in different places. So they you know, conclude ultimately that the approach they set out not only um, better reflects the, or correctly reflects, the actual discretion that's afforded the Law Society, 
but it also will ultimately result in a you know, system as a whole that better reflects the charter. So you have these four different approaches. Um, they vary to you know, differing degrees, but they ultimately, I think, illustrate how very difficult these problems are to grapple with and how unsettled the law is at present. So do we have any questions on these Trinity Western University dissents? Or concurring reasons? Did anybody find anything particularly persuasive? Because I kind of find whichever one I'm reading, I agree with. <laughs> They're all very well thought out. Um, you know, I think uh, ultimately, going forward, there will be certainly another opportunity to, um, to reconsider this approach. Um, I don't know of the case yet that it's going to be raised within, but I would be very surprised if within two or three years you don't have a, you know, a new case that sets out something. And I, my bet would be that it's going to be more or less Chief Justice McLaughlin's tweaks to the Doré framework. All right, so let's move on then and get into um, a different but in some ways similar question of the intersection of Aboriginal law and administrative law. And this is a very complicated question because when we're talking about um, administrative law's intersection with Aboriginal and Indigenous law, there are myriad of different issues that can arise and it can be sometimes difficult to be clear conceptually as to sort of what issue we are talking about at any given time. And so I want to start off by just being entirely clear on the terminology and I'm sure that you all have, um, have learned this but um, most people in the practice still don't get this right. So I'm going to start with the distinction in terms between Aboriginal law and Indigenous law. Um, sure you all have learned that you know, we've come to use these terms so that Aboriginal law talks about the intersection between the state and indigenous groups and focuses quite a bit on the section 35 protected rights of those communities, treaty rights and the common law Aboriginal rights. Indigenous law, on the other hand, is the law of the indigenous groups themselves. And so, with the intersection of Aboriginal and Indigenous law and administrative law, you know, we want to be clear as to whether we're thinking about the intersection of, indeed, Aboriginal law or whether we're thinking about Indigenous law. And a further complicating factor about Indigenous law is that Indigenous law, in some ways, has its own you know, three-circle structure, where you have um, the Band Council, 
who exercise powers and can pass resolutions and can create law in a way that's very similar to you know, legislator. But then you also have, you can have um, You can have courts that adjudicate within the indigenous law framework, and then you can have an executive who interprets and applies the rules of the band council. So when you're thinking about the indigenous law, you want to think about, well, where are we within this framework? Are we talking about a sort of adjudicated decision made by a body that's akin to a court? Are we talking about a law or a regulation or a resolution passed by the council? Or are we looking at the way the indigenous law of the nation's been administered and whether there's some issue that's arising in the administration of the law that you know, has caused some individual difficulties. And then you, we want to think, well, how does this all intersect with administrative law? And what the temptation has been, in some ways, is to put all of this, in essence, within the executive and have it overseen by the judiciary through administrative law principles. So the judiciary will entertain judicial reviews of the decisions of the band courts, of the band council, or the band executive. But this has been criticized as not recognizing the degree to which you know, the band court, the judicial system, really ought to be seen as on the same level and deserving of the same approach as the settler judiciary. And the council could be treated as you know, akin to the legislature, not akin to a component of the executive. These are difficult questions where there isn't a coherent answer that's been set out, i.e., do you treat all of this band administration as one big part of the executive covered by judicial review? Or do you try to parse this out and treat different components of indigenous governance as different, um, you know, equivalent to and uh, treated the same as our three levels of government, our separation of powers? These difficult questions. I just want to have this up here because I think it'll help animate our discussion moving forward. Um, so, just taking a step back, and let's think a little bit about, you know, the ways in which administrative lawyers and Aboriginal uh, and Indigenous law come together. And. One way that we see this is quite often the decisions that affect indigenous groups are coming out of the executive. The way the law is administered by the Canada or provincial government 
is not to the satisfaction of indigenous Aboriginal groups, and they wish to challenge that, so they invoke um, administrative law to do so. So there is some of this topic we want to think of is indigenous and Aboriginal groups just invoking the principles of administrative law to challenge actions of the government. But then there's also individual members of bands, nations, who are upset with the decisions of their own government, the, of the nation, of the band. And then they may wish to invoke the supervisory power of the courts to challenge their own decisions, their, their own nation's decisions. This obviously raises quite different concerns. It raises questions as to the basis upon which the courts, this, you know, colonial courts, ought to be able to supervise the decisions of these, um, of an of a indigenous nation. But it also raises questions of whether a person should be afforded less robust protection by the courts when their rights are at stake, you know, merely because those rights are threatened by a, um, by a, a banned governance decision as opposed to a settler government, colonial government decision. So there's difficult questions that are raised on both sides. But what you really want to bear in mind is that there are two quite different categories of administrative law that are possibly arising. You know, the one being using administrative law so that the indigenous group can challenge government decisions, and the other being individual members using administrative law to challenge indigenous law decisions, decisions arising from within the banned decision-making process itself. Does that make sense? Okay. So there are areas of law where areas of administrative law where um, you, you simply can't avoid Aboriginal law as well. Um, and, and most notably, resource extraction. You know, if any of you are going to work um, with proponents, helping them navigate the incredibly complex regimes, statutory regimes around environmental permitting and resource development, you know, you're going to need to consider Aboriginal law issues because the adequacy of consultation and accommodation gets determined to a large extent within the executive process and is then subject to judicial review. We'll, we'll talk about that at some length. So the book uh, chapter, which you know, I did find it was, it was very interesting, it's very dense, uh, there's a lot in there. Uh, but I like the framing of setting out three sections broadly. So talking about admin law as the arbiter between 
indigenous people and the crown as being one broad topic, and I want to get into that after the break. Secondly, talking about the admin law as a vehicle to recognize and implement Aboriginal rights. And third, admin law and its intersection with self-governance. So the first two are both sort of squarely within traditional admin law framing, where we're concerned with an action of the executive, and it is the indigenous group who's invoking administrative law principles in order to um, you know, challenge the actions of the executive. And the final one is where we're talking about the oversight of the colonial court system through judicial review of the actions of a self-governing band. So, you know, indeed, I think what we might do is take the break now because we're at a good spot before I get into the admin law's arbiter. So let's take 10 minutes now and then we'll get back and we'll get into this, um, some of these very interesting issues. All right, let's get back to it, everybody. So, so we're getting back into the reading now, and we're going to talk a bit about the section where the authors describe admin law as an arbiter between indigenous peoples and the crown. Um, and this is separate from you know, admin law as a vehicle to advance Section 35 protected rights and do the consult issues. This is rather, we have this relationship between indigenous peoples and the crown, indigenous groups and the crown, and when issues arise in relation to that relationship, administrative law is often invoked as a tool to regularize or deal with problems in those relationships. Um, I was sort of debating how much background to get into, into the relationship between indigenous peoples and the crown. I'm sure that you know, you've received quite a bit of education on that topic through your first and second years of law school, uh, far more certainly I think than I did, which is a, a wonderful thing. Um, but it's hard to explore this issue without at least a, a tiny bit of touching upon the sort of way the relationship evolved. And there's a few themes I want to make sure we're all sort of clear on. Um, and so, you know, it does, as many things in this area come back to, uh, you have to recognize the roots of the crown indigenous policy as lying largely in the Indian Act and the abuses of the Indian Act. Um, and I think you probably are all well familiar with the idea that the Indian Act has long been federal legislation and it historically was a vehicle through which the federal government pursued a policy of assimilation of First Nations within to the um, colonial system. Um, it goes hand in hand with efforts such as the residential schools program. 
And perhaps most notably for present purposes, it imposed a governance structure on Aboriginal groups um, through the imposition of the band council system, which required an elected band council, an elected leadership, and which imposed rules in relation to the election of that leadership that operated notwithstanding whatever the traditions of leadership of the particular nation were. Um, and most notably, for quite a long time, the um, ability to even vote in band council elections, let alone to serve as leadership, was restricted to men, notwithstanding the fact that some Aboriginal groups um, had matriarchal power structures. And almost all Aboriginal groups had a uh, power um, arrangement that wasn't, you know, a strictly elected council with an elected chief. That's, that was very much an imposed leadership structure. However, the powers of the band councils continue to this day in a wide variety of different spheres. The entity that the government will recognize and engage with is the band council as recognized through the um, requirements of the Indian Act. Now there's much more um, discretion and ability for nations to have different leadership structures and different election systems, custom election codes, all that today. But there is still fundamentally the imposition of the band council upon these nations' uh, own governance resonates through to this very day. And so when we're thinking about indigenous groups and their leadership, we want to recognize that there's, there can be a distinction between the leadership according to the indigenous law, and these are sometimes we hear hereditary chiefs, and the idea that, well, that's a person who, under indigenous law, ought to have been leading this group, versus the band council system, who is the people who have the power pursuant to the system imposed upon the group through the band council system. And you'll sometimes see very stark divides between um, membership as to whether or not the band council leadership is in fact expressing the will of the group or whether the hereditary chiefs have a better claim to leadership. Um, I've been involved in disputes that get very almost Shakespearean. Well, you'll see a, you know, the band council is led by the father, and the son is claiming hereditary chief uh, rights, and the nation splits uh, who they'll uh, um, acknowledge as the proper leadership. And you'll see um, you know, very uh, ugly disputes that can arise as between membership and the band as to who the proper leadership is. And these can become uh, really exasperated by the amount of money that can be at stake in um, both payments for you know, consultation, um, to, to allow nations to proceed with consultation, 
and then accommodation for interferences with rights, payments coming both from government or potentially from industry. And so having the mantle of the person who can you know, give the consent of the nation to a project is extremely valuable, which only furthers these divisions that are, arise through this imposition of the band council system. So you have this um, band governance that's been fractured in a sense right from the start through the imposition of the system of band council leadership in the Indian Act. Um, you know, then there's a myriad of other abuses within the history of the Indian Act that further um, you know, call into question the legitimacy of that system. Um, there's long the idea of uh, suffrage, the idea that if you, um, th there will be certain things that you will do which um, will cause a person to lose their status under the Indian Act. And it was, it was framed as being enfranchised because you gain status to vote in ordinary, or not ordinary, but to vote in sort of the settler Canadian political system. Because for a long time, if you had status under the Indian Act, you couldn't vote in you know, provincial or federal elections. But the basis upon which you would lose your status under the Indian Act, as you probably are well aware was highly discriminatory. Um, if a woman married a non-indigenous man, she would lose status. However, if the man married a non-indigenous woman, he would not lose status. The ability to pass on status to your children would be affected by the fact as to whether your mother or your father was the person with status. And those problems resonate through to today. And then there was a direct program of attempting to use this um, status issue, status under the Indian Act, ability to participate in band council elections, using this as a means to prevent nations from advancing their interests in court. And there were rules such as, if you become a lawyer, you lose status under the Indian Act. Um, there was also rules requiring the federal government to give you leave to sue it if you were upset as a nation, as a band, with the way your rights were being affected by the federal government. So, you know, you kind of think you're, you're affecting my rights, can I sue you? Uh, no, sorry, ah, shoot. You know, that was in essence the way the system worked. So you want to think there's these huge barriers, both direct, you know, you can't sue me without leave, and indirect, if anybody becomes a lawyer, they're not, no longer part of your band. Um, you know, if you marry out of, or sorry, if you marry into a family that's not indigenous, if you're a woman, you're not longer part of the band. You know, various ways of uh, restricting the ability of nations to forcefully advocate for their rights, all against the backdrop of the absolutely atrocious abuses of the residential schools and the breaks in traditional knowledge that that caused. So, you know, it's hard to understand some of these issues in the intersection of administrative law and Aboriginal law without remembering that history. Uh, it explains why so many of these ideas are still somewhat in limbo, somewhat in flux, that there simply hadn't been that much of an opportunity for nations to work these issues out given the tremendous obstacles they're up against. And because you only have so much 
uh, money, time, you know, abil ability to pursue different you know, legal cases, you have to sort of prioritize. Um, there's only so many issues you can take on. So against this backdrop, we want to think about the federal government's relationship with First Nations. And so constitutionally, Section uh, 9124, I think, of the Division of Powers provides the federal government with constitutional jurisdiction in relation to Indians and lands reserved for Indians. The, one of the issues that arose here is broadly social services, obviously, you know, fire, healthcare, police, these types of um, services, social assistance, generally, done by the provincial government, right? So the provincial government say, hey, you know, I know I do social services, but you have jurisdiction in relation to Indians and lands reserved for Indians, federal government. So I'm not gonna provide those social services, services to these bands. I'm not gonna provide those services, certainly on reserves, because that's your responsibility, federal and the federal government says, in essence, well, I know I've got jurisdiction over Indians and lands for Indians, but I don't have jurisdiction over all these services. Those are provincial matters. So there was a sort of a back and forth, a, a buck pushing. Um, John Burroughs, if you're familiar with John Burroughs, right, the leading scholar in indigenous law and Aboriginal law in Canada in many ways, he called this a, um, I can just term exactly, um, uh, the structural racism of federalism, he's called this. That there is this, uh, within federalism, there is this constant finger pointing back and forth as to you know, who ought to be taking on the responsibility uh, in relation to these issues for First Nations. <coughs> And in essence, neither government wants it. And the book does a good job of explaining this as well. So eventually, slowly, the federal government started to accept the responsibility over these services and initially provided services directly, but then followed a model of program devolution or self-administration. These are the terms that were used. And this is the idea that, look, we're going to no longer provide these services directly. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to fund the band, provide funding to the band, and allow them to provide these services themselves, to do their, you know, their own health and police and fire and social safety services. Now there's certainly good things that can be said for that if you want to further the project of indigenous self-governance, providing the nation with the support and the jurisdiction to you know, handle these issues on their own 
uh, can be seen as a positive thing in many ways, so long as the funding and the support is there and is done in a, in a fair and equal way. Otherwise, you're saying everyone else gets a fire department, but you, know, you guys don't, or you don't unless you pay for it yourself. So you can sort of see where the tension potentially arises, where nations say, you have a responsibility over this topic, federal government, it's an issue that you don't normally have to deal with, you know, local services, but it's constitutionally a responsibility in these circumstances. Uh, if you want to give it to me, I'm happy to take it on, but you better give me the support that I need. And this is where the um, sort of the conflict that the book talks about under this heading has arisen when nations and the government can't agree on how these services and these programs ought to be funded. And the problems that the book talks about in relation to administrative law are, I think, fairly striking and should come across as fairly striking at this point. And the book breaks it up into sort of two categories. One would be the violation of the rule of law and overbroad discretion, and the other is a lack of accountability on the part of Canada. And what would be, you know, I think surprising somewhat given our experience with fairly detailed legislative schemes providing significant guidance to the executive on how the legislature intends for important programs to be administered, this whole funding arrangement whereby nations enter into agreements and take on social programs themselves with some assistance from the federal government on funding is just not set out in statute. There's a extremely broad and amorphous power provided under um, what is now the uh, uh, Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Act, which was previously the um, Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development Act. There's extremely broad power that's given, and then there's just no clear guidance on you know, the minimum funding mandates, what the requirements to get funding are, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the current section um, that is relied upon is sort of the basis, the legal basis from the legislature to give the executive the power to enter into these sort of funding arrangements just states the minister's powers, duties, and functions extend to and include all matters over which Parliament has jurisdiction and are not by law assigned to any other department, board, or agency of the Government of Canada relating to relations with Indigenous peoples. So you've got authority over everything. Okay, well, what does that mean? How is that supposed to resonate in the actual provision of these services? Well, there, there isn't an answer you're going to find in the legislation. So instead, what you have is the minister and then the minister's delegates empowered through this very broad granted power to have wide discretion in the funding and other arrangements it enters into with First Nations. And the book's authors make, I think, a pretty compelling argument that this is contrary to the rule of law. It's 
contrary to the principle of legality, which the authors note include the idea that the law should be clear and published, which both protects against arbitrary exercises of power and also informs people of what is expected from them and what they can expect from the law, right? So if instead of you know, clear requirements on the federal government to provide services to this extent and these sorts of services and these circumstances to these people, you instead have this broad and sort of limitless discretion and who exercises that discretion? Well, on the ground level, you know, it's the minister's delegates. It's not everything is being done at the ministerial level. And who are those delegates? Well, there's lots of different people negotiating with lots of different nations. So what deal you're going to get, what sort of attentiveness you're going to get, may in large part just depend on which person you're negotiating and what sort of minimal standards can you point to and demand as of rights from those people? Well, nothing coming from the legislation and very limited guidance coming from the case law. So you're left with a situation where extremely important decisions that are affecting the daily lives of people uh, across the country are largely left up to a discretion that's given almost no guidance in the legislation. And the book has that nice you know, donut quote from um, the legal theorist Dworkin, saying that discretion is the hole in the donut, but you can only understand it by understanding what's around it. That's, you have to understand what constrains the discretion. But the book says, you think about the discretion that's afforded over these funding agreements, it's a hula hoop. Like, it's, it's this huge, broad discretion with only very limited constraints at the absolute outsides of it. And so, overbroad discretion undermining the rule of law is one of the themes that you want to think about in relation to these funding agreement arrangements. The other theme that the authors point to is a lack of accountability accepted by Canada. And you know, Canada had taken this position that we shouldn't really be involved in this. Then they said, okay, well, we're fine. We're just the funder, but we're not gonna get involved in anything beyond just giving you some money. And if you have you know, specific problems with your services, you know, why don't you even go talk to the provincial governments because they're the ones who should be talking about healthcare anyways, that sort of a thing. But even when you articulate Canada's role as, you know, not being involved in the substance of these issues of provision of social services, etc., but only being obliged to fund those services to some level, you still have extreme difficulties in holding Canada to account through administrative law. And one of the big problems is there's no guidance given as to these sort of minimal standards. And then you have 
that Min Law, which is not well suited to dealing with sort of broad systemic problems. It's better at dealing with, okay, there's one, there's a statutory scheme and you're outside the scope of your jurisdiction within this clear guidance. If you want to say, no, there's just chronic underfunding across the board of all First Nation communities in Canada, you can't take that on in like judicial review. It's, the court's going to say it's well beyond the scope of what we could possibly deal with in this context. I question whether it's justiciable at all. That's raising core policy concerns, and it's not the court's job to tell the government how to spend its money on a broad level. All those types of arguments you can just see coming your way if you try to make a chronic underfunding argument saying that the Canadian federal government underfunds First Nations all across the country. So within admin law, you know, you're likely trying to focus on small, discrete decisions. It was unreasonable to refuse this funding request in these circumstances. But that's, a, again, a difficult question to get the courts to grapple with. And oftentimes, they'll be looking for, well, what's, what's other nations getting? They'll be asking, what's the, what's the benchmark that I could try to measure the funding you got as against to someone else? And indeed, Canada broadly, the federal government, embraces this idea, they call it horizontal equity in relation to their obligations to First Nations. And if you are acting for a First Nation and you assert that something is necessary or required, you can be almost certain that the government will come back and say, well, we can't give that to you because we didn't give that to this, this, and this nation. And it's not fair for us to give you something that we're not giving them. After you're working on behalf of the bands, you say, well, give it to them too. Like, don't not give it to me because they don't have it. Give it to everyone. But the pressure certainly has worked generally as a sort of forcing the minimal obligations down as opposed to lifting everybody up. And the courts tend to view decisions that are defensible within this horizontal equity framework that you're getting the same as somebody else to be defensible. So difficult to challenge these things, difficult to hold Canada to account within these administrative um, law reviews of decisions in relation to these funding arrangements. And the book notes as well that, you know, in addition to the, these broader difficulties you have with trying to fit a systemic issue into an administrative law judicial review, you know, you also see aggressive litigation tactics employed by federal government in those judicial review applications. They'll argue that, you know, they've argued that provision of such funding is, is a purely discretional policy matter that is simply not amenable to judicial review at all. So the government went so far as to claim that these, this executive action of funding First Nations cannot be subject to judicial review in any way, shape, or form. It's purely our discretion. 
Now that was rejected, then you as administrative law students should probably you know, understand that no, there's no such thing as just unrestrained discretion. But the government you know, went so far as to take that position in court, which again shows the barriers that are being erected to accessibility through administrative law to challenging this difficult to grasp funding question. Um, the book notes other issues that, you know, if you want to really review a funding decision and you want to get all the documentation to cover the historical story leading up to where the nation is in relation to this funding and where it ought to be, you're looking at an overwhelming paper trail. And this causes the legal fees associated with such a challenge to be very significant. And it also tends to diminish the court's confidence to intercede and, and to say, no, this was unreasonable because you know, they, they feel, maybe fairly, well, I don't understand the full picture. It's so complicated. Who am I to really say that this was, that this was a problem? Um, and generally, the courts just aren't um, comfortable, as a general rule, adjudicating the sort of sufficiency of socioeconomic programs. Uh, you'll often see, you know, in the charter context, this type of a, a point being raised. Well, you know, it's not, it's not for me to adjudge the efficacy of this government program. These types of concerns are often raised by the courts. And then, of course, you have a norm of deference to the government, which just is you know, starting almost uh, with a slight, with a significant disadvantage for the First Nations. Um, but of course, you start to wonder, well, wait, why was, if you've, you've got a government versus government dispute, what's the basis for deferring to one government over another government within these types of a dispute? And there's not really a great answer that is sort of divorced from the colonial context of, well, this is the real government and that's you know, not, which is sort of the, the view the courts have taken towards indigenous government in the past as compared to the uh, colonial governments. So what you want to take away from sort of this component of the ideas of the intersection between Aboriginal law and administrative law is that you have significant barriers that make it very hard for Aboriginal groups to invoke administrative law principles to deal with one of the main issues they run into with the federal government, which is challenging and reviewing the support they receive in this funding arrangement, which indeed was the federal government's idea in order to um, not have to directly take on the burden of providing social services to these nations. And you know, when you hear about some of the um, you know, horrible situations um, on some reserves and, and historically within some communities, um, drinking water issues, these types of things, 
you want to think that this, this um, buck passing and this failure to be held accountable through the ordinary legal process you know, may very well play a part in explaining how we got to where we've gotten to. And explaining why is it that a northern community has got just fine drinking water, but the Aboriginal community next door does not. What's the basis for that? Well, maybe the one community had a provincial government that was ensuring that you know services were provided appropriately, and the indigenous group um, had a situation where two governments were pointing the finger at each other, neither taking on the responsibility. Eventually passing it off to the nation, but providing insufficient funding or assistance leading to this inequity. So these, you know, these historical um, situations of unfairness continue to resonate through today, and the barriers to administrative law solutions are a explanation, in a sense, for a continuation of those problems. Okay, any questions on that sort of broad topic. Um, so if we're following along with the book's broad framing, we think, okay, there's this, this first issue of just pure admin law as uh, in the relationship between the nation's governance and the federal government. Then the next area the book talks about is the admin law elements of the recognition, affirmation, protection of constitutionally protected rights, Section 35 rights. So, of course, within the Constitution Act 1982, we get um, the Charter, which is Sections 1 through 34 of that Act. And then we get Section 35, which is the recognition and affirmation of Aboriginal and treaty rights, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the um, Aboriginal peoples of Canada are recognized and affirmed, right, Section 35 language. And are you familiar with the, the empty box uh, criticism of Section 35? So broadly, this was a criticism of Section 35 where you look at the Charter of Rights, and you get these specific rights defined throughout the 34 sections of the Charter. But then you get Section 35, and it just says, the existing Aboriginal rights, the existing treaty rights are recognized and affirmed. Well, what are the existing rights? At the time of Section 35, what were the constitutionally protected Aboriginal rights of the people of Canada? Nobody knew, right? There was no Vanderpeet, there was no Sparrow. Um, th there was no common law conception delineating what the scope of these Aboriginal rights were or what the modern scope of Aboriginal title was. Now the concept of Aboriginal rights and title is very old, recognized in the Royal Proclamation. Um, you know, recognized in historical treaties where the nations cede, yield up, and surrender their Aboriginal rights and title. But what those rights were that was protected, kind of unknown at the time of Section 35, 
And this is that criticism that you've been given an empty box, a protection of rights with no understanding what the rights are. Uh, in the treaty context, of course, you have some better, it's somewhat better because you do know um, what the treaty says your rights are, but the historical treaties define those rights in very broad and general terms, and the way that they've been administered um, you know, takes those broad and general terms and, and gives them as narrow a meaning as possible and then takes any specific term and gives it an extremely literal meaning. Like, did you all hear about the case coming out of Ontario recently about uh, treaty rights there? And you know, part of the issue was, I know it says you get $4 a year, right? should that be indexed to inflation? And the government's like, no, it's, it's $4 a year. You know, enjoy, your, enjoy your two toonies. And the Ontario Court of Appeal said that. Not exactly the best interpretation of this treaty right. But the... Um, but that, that's still now the government was taking that position, you know, in, in 2021. So the notion that your treaty rights are, are clear and understood is, you know, frankly not at all the case, and they're only perhaps slightly um, more easy to understand at the time of Section 35 than was the, um, the common law rights. Um, have you, did you hear about the Blueberry River, the Yahe case that came out this last summer? If you didn't, you, it's huge. And, and if you had taken Aboriginal law this year, I'm sure you would talk about it. And it, it amounted to a complete reconsideration of what um, Treaty 8 rights entail. And you know, the, the provincial government didn't appeal it, they've accepted the decision. And so it's a piece of Supreme Court decision, but it's going to be the leading, the leading authority on that within the province for sure. And it upended the government's understanding of treaty rights that they had been relying on for you know, basically 100 years. So where I'm getting at with all this is you have this constitutional protection for Aboriginal and treaty rights, but what that actually means, what's protected, what nations have what rights where under the treaty or under the common law of Aboriginal rights, it's very much left unknown and left to be determined either through negotiations between the federal, provincial, and Aboriginal governments or through the courts. And so one way that nations seek to have their Section 35 rights recognized, affirmed, and the scope of those rights defined is by invoking administrative law to challenge decisions that they say don't adequately protect their rights. What's the advantage of going in an admin using administrative law to do this? Well, it just comes down to something I think I might have talked about the first day of class. Judicial review, as compared to a civil action, is infinitely easier. So, you know, most of the time that I'm not working teaching you, I work on the Site C case for West Moberly First Nations. That's a civil action. There's been, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents. It may even be closer to a million documents that have been exchanged back and forth between the parties. Extensive examinations for discovery. 
the case has been litigating without having a trial even start for three or four years now, the trial will probably take 100 to 200 court days, which stretches a year or two of calendar time. It will require elders to come testify and be cross-examined as to their traditional knowledge. It requires um, just a, a load of expert reports on issues of fisheries, and wildlife, and anthropological reports, historical reports, reports about indigenous law. Um, the burden of taking this on is almost inconceivable for a nation. Uh, if you're struggling with day-to-day uh, -day problems, to say, no, let's also take on a multi-year um, program where our entire nation and its history will be viewed with skepticism by the government, where our elders will be called liars on the stand, you know, where we will be asked to reveal our indigenous knowledge, or our traditional ecological knowledge of hunting, fishing, trapping, we'll be asked to explain our spirituality. You know, this whole process is so unwieldy. But that's what's asked of nations if they want to prove Section 35 rights through civil actions. Does anybody know how many nations have had their Aboriginal title formally recognized by a court? There's one, right? Silco Team is the only nation that's done that. Um, that's notwithstanding there are nations who so obviously have Aboriginal title, it's almost comical to think that it's not recognized formally. Uh, the Haida Nation, Haida Gwaii, no question the Haida Nation has occupied Haida Gwaii since time immemorial and continuously. And yet, you know, Aboriginal titles still not recognized there. So you have this tremendous burden that civil procedure, civil actions place on nations if they want to prove their Section 35 rights and have them recognized. So what is the alternative? Well, try to use administrative law. Try to use a judicial review process to ask the courts to, within that context, recognize rights. The problem is, the courts have said, well, we need the whole trial context often if we want to actually formally recognize a right. So you're limited in the remedies you can ultimately get, and you'll often find a court just unwilling to give you an answer. West Moberly First Nations, prior to starting this court case, tried to judicially review the approval of the Site C Dam, both the federal and provincial approvals and separate judicial review applications. But within those court cases, the court said, we cannot ascertain the scope of your treaty rights in this case. You have to bring a full trial if you want us to do that. So you have this you know, desire to use the simplified administrative law processes to answer these Section 35 questions, but you have pushback where the courts are unwilling to grapple with these in the absence of the full evidentiary record, which leads to a situation where nearly 40 years after Section 35 being passed, you know, we still only have one nation that's proven title. 
So, you know, how would it be that you would have these questions come before the courts through an administrative process? Well, the answer to a lot of that stems from the recognition of the duty to consult within the Haida case. I'm sure you've all studied Haida Nation, duty to consult, and you're aware that when the government contemplates action which has the potential of uh, affecting asserted or proven Aboriginal rights or treaty rights, the government has a corresponding duty to consult and in certain circumstances accommodate those rights. So if you are a nation um, and you are unhappy with the consultation you've received, one thing you can do is bring a judicial review of the adequacy of that consultation. And we'll see that in the readings for Friday in relation to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And indeed, one of the bases upon which the Federal Court of Appeal set aside the Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity, the approval for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, was an inadequacy of consultation. So what's the first uh, question within applying the duty to consult framework? You may remember that you're looking at the strength of the claim. Is this a strongly asserted Aboriginal right or title case? Or is this a assertion of a right or title in a circumstance where on a prima facie review it seems unlikely that it will be successful in um, you know, being established? Or is this a clearly established treaty right you're asserting? Or are you asserting some theory of treaty protection that goes beyond what the courts have previously recognized? And so there's been this idea, okay, well, within that context, um, you know, maybe we can ascertain the existence of, of um, you know, rights and title within the context of reviewing the assessment of the strength. That's been shot down. They've said, nope, if you want to prove your title, you, know, you can't do that by just arguing within a judicial review of the consultation that they should have recognized as being a stronger case and indeed a proven case. So then nations have said, okay, well, what about when we are just dragged into these processes? So for example, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion affects the territory of numerous nations with both treaty and Aboriginal asserted Aboriginal rights. Kwantlen First Nation um, has a extremely strong claim, similar in strength to um, to Haida Gwaii over a or to the Haida Nation over an island in the Fraser River that's affected by Trans Mountain Pipeline. So they go to the administrative approval procedure for the Trans Mountain Pipeline the National Energy Board's hearings, and their counsel says, you need to accept that I have title, and you need to apply uh, a title analysis to the adequacy of consultation 
accommodation, and ultimately to my right to say no, to not provide consent to this project and recognize that it would be therefore an infringement of my title. So, you know, here's a, a question. Within the administrative framework then, when a question is forced upon a nation about the scope of their rights or whether they have title, can that be determined within the administrative framework? And if not, ought the court or the tribunal to at least assume it's as strong as they assert, you know, absent uh, compelling case to the contrary. And sadly, I think for the nations, the way the law has landed is the courts have said, no, you don't do either of those things. You treat it as an unproven, asserted right. You don't assume it will be proven. And they say, you know, in a very sort of cheeky argument, that would disincentivize nations from going through the steps of actually formally proving their title. If you could just get the assumption that you have it proven, if anything is going to be done to infringe it. They, of course, say, well, we know we have it. I don't know why we need to prove it to you. You, know, you should disprove it if you, if you disagree with us. But the law has landed you know, in the other, on the reverse. The burden is on the nations to prove their title, not on the government to disprove their claims of title. So you have these issues which arise within decisions of the executive largely in relation to resource extraction and development, which can be challenged within judicial review contexts, but which have limited ultimate remedies for nations, and those remedies are not going to include a recognition of your rights and title. Most often, what it's going to come down to is a finding about the adequacy of consultation and a procedural obligation placed on the government to, in essence, redo consultation. So when you're thinking about these Section 35 rights and how they intersect with administrative law, you want to think that the, the main point of intersection, and if you're going to be doing administrative law on behalf of First Nations, what you're going to be probably doing mostly is arguing about the adequacy of consultation. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page a bit about how this consultation is done in practice, because it has a strange um, sort of intersection with our judicial, legislative, and executive framework. So you have tribunals who are asked to engage with the consultation process and are asked to accomplish much of the consultation on behalf of the government. So for example, the National Energy Board, in its role of reviewing and approving potentially, or always it seems, a pipeline, it will ask for the views of affected nations. It will record those views. It will allow those nations to participate and make submissions on the project. 
And this work that's been done within that National Energy Board process is relied upon by the government as part of its discharge of the duty to consult. However, the courts have been clear that the government can't wipe its hands of its obligation to consult by just giving the, uh, the duty to a tribunal. Rather, the duty rests, the, the, the uh, courts have said, on the crown. Now, what is the crown? Well, it's not really the executive or the legislature. It's kind of a superimposed idea that encompasses all aspects of the government. And what this means is that if you find, if you think the consultation was inadequate, it's no answer for the government to say, well, we let you go to the National Energy Board and they said it was okay, so you, know, they, you should be satisfied. Rather, the government, if the National Energy Board process was deficient in any way, has an obligation to supplement that consultation to ensure that the minimal standards have been met. So you have this sort of odd dynamic in a judicial review of the adequacy of consultation, where you're saying, I'm, you know, there's a problem with the uh, approval granted by the National Energy Board for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The problem is I wasn't adequately consulted on this. And the courts will say, okay, National Energy Board, maybe you did everything you were supposed to do just perfectly fine. However, the crown, as a more, oops, as a more broad concept, you know, didn't discharge its duty despite you doing everything fine. What's the remedy then? Well, you actually quash the decision of the National Energy Board and set it aside. So there's a strange intersection here between the um, individual executive tribunal whose decision is reviewed but superimposed upon it is a broader obligation on the crown, you know, arising from this concept of the honor of the crown, which requires consultation consistent with the highest standards, regardless of whatever uh, the National Energy Board did or didn't do. So it gets very complex, it gets very convoluted. Um, but for your real present purposes, I want you to take away from what we've talked about so far in this topic that you have, um, on the one hand, the administrative law coming in to grapple with questions when you have these problems between nations and the federal government in relation to funding. You also want to think you have this promise of administrative law as being an effective tool to uh, get at the definition and content and scope of Aboriginal rights and title and treaty rights but that that's been very limited in its effectiveness and the courts have pushed those decisions, those issues to full trials as opposed to administrative law judicial reviews. And then you wanna have in your mind that the real intersection between these section 35 rights and admin law is almost always in the duty to consult and asserting that a duty to consult has not been fulfilled in a, in a particular case. And that leads to the setting aside of a permit issued by the executive uh, branch, by the tribunal in question. 
but on the basis of a failure of this sort of amorphous, broader crowns obligations. So there's a lot to unpack there, um, but I think it'll be easier to maybe really get our heads around these very difficult topics by looking at the two specific examples we have for next week. So we're look, or sorry, for Friday. So we're looking at the um, decision of the Federal Court of Appeal, which ultimately set aside the approval for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, at least for a little while. And we're also looking at a internal governance dispute and the supervision of that by the federal court. So that's getting at the sort of third intersection of administrative law and Aboriginal law, that is the court supervision of self-governance, um, which is discussed in the book and I haven't gotten to introduce yet in our lecture, but I'll, I'll start with the um, next class. So thanks so much and, and we'll pick this up on Friday. Thank you.